This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day and welcome to Tractor Time Podcast, brought to you by Acres USA. I'm your host, Ryan Slaybaugh, and we are excited to bring you another episode. This one will be about advocacy and how to get involved to make real change happen. Our guest today embodies that sentiment, uh, Judith McGeary. Those who attend our conference every year or read the magazine for many years uh, should know her name as she's a frequent speaker and contributor. Uh, But why we ask her to speak and write is most important. She's the founder and leader of the Farming and Ranching Freedom Alliance. She represents about a thousand farmers uh, around Texas who uh, want government to better represent all of its constituents, not just the huge corporate farming interest. Uh, She's also a rancher herself at the McGeary Family Farm, a couple hours outside of Austin, Texas. Uh, How she found her way into this role is something we'll discuss during the podcast, and her story is inspiring. It involves a career change and some life-changing moments with farmers and politicians. Uh, Not only does Judith lead FARFA, but she serves as the Executive Director of the Council for Healthy Food Systems and is on the board of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. This year, she's leading the Raise Your Voice Tour to learn more about what type of advocacy farmers and rangers need the most. We'll get to that and more in this 40-minute talk. You can learn more about FARFA at farmandranchfreedom.org. That's farmandranchfreedom.org as you're listening. Uh, we'll talk about uh, that and ways to learn more about FARFA after this is over, too. So uh, I know I'm excited as to what we'll learn today and what we're going to talk about. Welcome to Tractor Time, Judith McGeary. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we'll get right into it this morning. Um, let's start, let's, I guess, start where we should start, probably at the beginning. Um, you started your career as an environmental lawyer, correct? Yeah. Uh, and then you became a cattle rancher. Is that Do I have that right? And what happened between those two that, uh, that got you out in, in farming? Uh, so it actually, it actually wasn't cattle ranching. My first foray into farming was poultry. Poultry, okay. Um, but... They actually are more logically connected than you would think. So I went into law to, to to help the environment, to help people and the environment coexist in positive ways. And I found myself kind of disillusioned of, of what I was able to do as an attorney, that the system wasn't isn't designed well. And I was going to go back into science and, and work on the same issues, really, 
a typical environmentalist, endangered species, wetlands, wilderness, all of these good, feel good environmentalist things. And I actually should say that. They're all great environmentalist things. Um, and I went and I met uh, Professor Dick Richardson at the time at University of Texas. And he looked at me and said, well, if you care about the environment, you should care about where your food comes from. And I was pretty clueless, um, and he called me out for that, um, and got me reading, among other things, Acres. Um, I, he, I started a subscription to Acres, and I started reading Alan Savory's work. And um, it was a, a paradigm shift for me. It, it was, I, I realized that we could have agriculture, we could have human, you know, a vital human use of the land in a way that not only wasn't poisonous, the way that most conventional ag is, but that affirmatively was positive for the land, and that was good for animals, and that was good for local businesses, and small economies, and decentralizing our system, and all of these issues. Um, so it, it was it, it was life, it was life changing for me, literally. Um, and so I, I, at the time, I stayed, for a while, I stayed an attorney to help pay the bills, and my husband and I set up a small pastured poultry operation, which then later turned into pastured lamb and is now pastured lamb and beef operation. That's, uh, that, well, thank you for connecting the dots for us. I, uh, um, I'm not in my head because I, I found agriculture and the environmental side of agriculture a little the same way. I was a reporter uh, covering uh, mountain streams and jeopardized forests and things like that in, in the early 2000s, and uh, uh, agriculture was kind of looked as the enemy. You know, when I was in, when I was on that beat, it was it was the other people. They were the ones destroying the land. And uh, about 20 years later, as I got involved with Acres and and uh, uh, more the environmental side of ag, I saw how much conflict still exists between those two things, um, mostly unnecessarily, really. And uh, uh, and it's really been a, a learning ground for me. Could you talk about that a little bit of just how you uh, rem- you know how how you came to learn about the I guess environmental side of agriculture and how you personally. Uh, connect those dots between environmentalism and resource, you know, uh, I guess uh, natural resources and, and, and using the land to produce those natural resources. So, I mean, the, the traditional environmentalism, environmentalist perspective, which I very much was part of, you know, back then, mm-hmm. views agriculture is at best as a necessary evil. Right. We have to feed people, you know. Um, you have conventional agriculture, which is putting huge amounts of toxins into the environment. It is um, ripping up, you know, areas of wilderness. Uh, you know, certainly down in the Amazon, you're looking at, you know, rainforest cut down to allow grazing cattle. You know, it, it's very destructive. And again, the traditional environmentalist perspective on something like organic agriculture is, it's less bad. You know, you're not putting the pesticides out. You're not putting the herbicides out. You're not poisoning the pollinators, um, you're still ripping up areas that, you know, would be better off, you know, I put that in quotes now, um, as wilderness and wildlife habitat, um, you know, and, and there's sort of just this, well, unfortunately we have to do this, so we'll, we'll do it. And, and what I came to realize as I, as I read Alan Savory's work and I read Acres and, and I got into it myself and I started working the land this way myself is that it's uh, an artificial choice. You know, you you can have wildlife habitat or you can have agriculture. Actually, a really well-managed, you know, pastured grazing operation provides wonderful wildlife habitat. 
um, this is what what do we think there was back when the buffalo roamed? Right. You know, which is what we're trying to do with holistic management of our land. You know, you're trying to mimic, you know, use our cattle and our sheep the way the buffalo handle, you know, managed, again, quotes, managed the land. Um, so you can actually see, you know, a restoration of, I mean, the, the prairie soils we have in this country are were remarkable. I mean, the, the, the wealth in terms of natural resources w- w- was truly stunning. Um, and we have been, we have mined that wealth. We have destroyed a great deal of it. But we have the potential to bring it back. Um, and I look at what people do. You know, for me, it's I automatically go to the grazing side. You know, that's mm-hmm. where what, what we do day to day, and therefore, you know, where my first love is. Um, but you can see similar stories with slightly different angles on people doing vegetable production. Um, you know, with or, really good organic, holistic methods. Um, we have farmers who do basically who mimic prairies but doing vegetable production. Mm. Um, and, and one of our farmers does this wonderful um, curved bed setup mm. that is extraordinary for um, both drought resistant, but drought resilient, and for um, flood control. And he went through Harvey, 50 inches of rain, Hurricane Harvey last year, wow. 50 inches of rain with no flooding wow. because of how well he was managing his land. And so we've got this wonderful situation where you can see from microorganisms, you know, pulling out the microscope and seeing the microorganisms come back to the soil, the soil come alive, to little arthropods like dung beetles, to the lizards and the frogs and those, up to deer and birds and larger, you know, larger wildlife. They thrive right. in connection with sustainable agriculture. And human health thrives. I mean, the, the wonderful thing, again, is you then sort of start seeing it all holistically. And you recognize that these exact same things are doing great things for the land and the environment, are raising food that has higher nutrition for the people as well. It, it's such a wonderful win-win-win situation in a world where we too often think of things as zero-sum games. Right. Right, right, exactly. That we we have to give up something to make progress. At that point, uh, uh, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, before we get into Farfa, could you talk about what you what you and your family do on the McGeary family farm? Uh, so we've got grass-fed lamb and grass-fed beef, mm-hmm. um, and we have a small orchard that we're we want to expand a little bit and covers everything from lemon trees and fig trees to you know plums and pears. Um, we'd like to start a little bit of specialty cropping. You know, the livestock is the core of what we do, and I, it will remain the core of what we do, I, I anticipate. Um, but part of the philosophy is, is to diversify and to do things that fit well with our family mm-hmm. as well as, you know, our customer base. That's uh, that's excellent. And uh, uh, it's always good to talk to 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 somebody who's actually farming and advocating at the same time. It's a rare thing. So, again, we're really lucky to have Judith McGeary on. She's with the family, or excuse me, the Farm and uh, Ranching Freedom Alliance, excuse me. Uh, FARFA is what we're going to call it. Uh, if you're wondering what we're saying when we say FARFA, that's what we're meaning today. Uh, so, anyway, uh, Judith, could you tell us about FARFA and how, how you got the idea to create FARFA and, and, and 
how it's got to where it is today? It's a big question, I know. Uh, so Farfa had the truth back in 2005 and early 2006 when the USDA was work starting to push the National Animal ID System, or NAIS, which was a plan to electronically tag and track every livestock animal in the country, right down to, you know, backyard poultry. And it was a system that had been designed by big agribusiness, um, really for the benefit of the export markets. And the tech companies had gotten involved because this was going to be a wonderful profit maker for them. And big agribusiness associations were all involved, both because they represent big agribusiness and because they were planning to run the databases and make lots of money running the databases. It, it, was, it was one of these insane messes that actually when I first heard about it, I, I didn't believe it. Like I was what I thought was some stupid internet rumor because it was such, it was such so clearly a horrible plan from the perspective for any farmer you know, who wasn't just part of big agribusiness. Um, And then I discovered it wasn't just an internet rumor. And Texas, as it happened, was one of the first states to start pushing it. USDA was implementing the plan by funding state ag departments and animal health authorities to push it throughout the state level. And Texas was one of the first to, 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 to be on the forefront of it. And so I and some other Texas farmers and ranchers started found out about it, started talking about it and objecting to it. And at the time, I was practicing law still. I was, I had a, I was um, at a law firm um, while my husband and I were also farming. And we asked around, we asked all of the advocacy groups, what are you doing about this? How do we stop this? And we got responses ranging from, we really don't know what the heck you're talking about, <laughs> to... Um, We've heard about it, but it's voluntary, because that was USDA's line. It was voluntary, because it was the states making it mandatory, to, um, unfortunately, you know, one of the largest groups saying, oh, well, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal, and it's already basically a done deal, so you just need to learn to live with it. And um, I don't take well to being told that <laughs> when I look at something um, that is, the way it was designed would have been so destructive for sustainable livestock farmers. It would have pushed literally thousands of sustainable livestock farmers, you know, out of business. And so I, I left my law practice and founded FARFA, you know, together with these other farmers and ranchers at the time. I called, we, we, we sat down and went, okay, we, we, need, we need an organization that can lobby. We, this is a government issue. We need an organization out there that can be a lobby organization. And that although all of us were sustainable farmers, that isn't just about sustainable farming because this was also a threat to conventional cow-calf operations. This was a threat to backyard poultry folks. This was a threat to horse owners. Um, this was for everybody, and so we wanted a group that could cross those lines and bring people together, and that's, that's how Farfa was born. Wow. That, uh, that, it sounds like you had some good early interest and you had a good uh, a group to get this started with, but I assume that it, it still... At first, anytime you start a group, you kind of feel like you're you're shouting into the wind a little bit, um, and that's really hard to be noticed. Uh, how did you guys, you know, get the attention of the elected officials or the, or the people you were trying to reach? So there were, yeah, it, it is hard, <laughs> um, and so there were different layers to that. Um, and building a movement, I, I think her choice to think of it sort of as a a spiral. You sort of build. And, and you circle back to the same things over and over and over, but at different levels. So, you know, one of the fundamental pieces of that is simply 
talking to legislators mm. and constituents reaching out to their legislators. So, you know, we had, you know, we spread the word to as many people as we could. It, it happened that there was a Texas Organic Farmers and Gardeners Associations conference right at that time. And so we were able, you know, to, to stand up at Tosca. This was actually mm. before Farco was formed, and this was what helped form us. Um, and say, like, hey, this is going on. You need to call your rep. You know, let's, let's talk about this. And so these representatives, the, the government, the Texas state legislators, started getting these phone calls from constituents. And it takes fewer than you would think to get their attention. Hmm. Um, a few phone calls really, really does make a di- do make a difference. Enough to get them curious as to what the heck was going on. Right. You know, it wasn't necessarily enough to make them like come out and be champions for us, but <laughs> enough for them to go, huh, we need to look at this. And then I came in, we, we developed materials, and I worked with people mm-hmm. who were used to lobbying. I wasn't. I knew nothing about lobbying at the time, but I learned quick. Um, and so I'd come in, and I'd go and meet with them, and I'd bring them the materials to explain, yeah, I know you're hearing from the animal health folks that this is a food safety issue, but here's why that's nonsense. I know you're hearing that it's about, you know, protecting us from foot and mouth disease, but here's why that's nonsense, and here's what it actually means for small farmers like those in your district. So you, you get their attention. The constituent makes them realize that this matters, mm. and then you come in with good materials, good information that answers, that, that gives them the information they need to go, oh, yeah, this, this doesn't look so good. And then you keep building. So, you know, those are, those are your fundamental building blocks. And then you spread the word. We held town hall meetings. We reached out through Yahoo groups and bulletin boards of people, you know, of homesteaders and small farm interests. We, I started writing Acres, was a huge advocate. Um, we, I wrote a monthly article for Acres for several years through that fight. Just about every month, Acres carried information about it. And, and just kept keeping Acres readership informed. We reached out to the other journals, other radio shows, and you build. You know, it, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, people have an image that it can happen overnight. It doesn't. Okay. Uh, but one thing we were lucky on on this issue was it offended both liberals and conservatives. <laughs> you know, sure. um, the conservatives looked at it and went, what do you mean you're going to track every person's animal? And it was just incredibly blatantly overreaching government into people's lives and then expense and all of this. And the liberals looked at it, you know, you, you brought in a lot of liberals through the sustainable ag movement and the, um, you know, local foods and small, you know, small disadvantaged businesses, you know, the economically disadvantaged businesses who were never going to be able to cover these costs. And you had this program, again, that was so blatantly offensive to both that we were able to message to, you know, a wide range of people who would then reach out to their legislators. When did you know that you were starting to get some traction? Did, was, there, was there a day or a phone call that you felt like, uh, you know, that, that change was starting to happen or that you, you felt like uh, you had had a breakthrough? Um... You know, it comes and goes, yeah. and that's the reality of, of sure. organizing. So I remember, it's actually quite funny, just yesterday I was sitting in the office of a, of a staffer for a Texas senator, and I was reminiscing about how his boss was actually the first legislator I'd ever sat down and talked to. 
And and I joked that the, with him. I said, "Yeah, he gave me such a skewed view of what it meant to talk to legislators because he sat there with me for an hour and wow. really listened and really got it and really was you know thinking through everything really well." And I was like. Yeah, I kind of came away with a bit of a rosy perspective about what it meant to talk to a legislator. Um, and so, so and, that, and it's true. And then I have these other conversations with legislators where I'm like, you, you don't care and you don't get it, do you? Um, and we're going to have to really change how you're thinking to get you anywhere near understanding us. So there are moments where you are really encouraged and it's like, oh, wow, we can do this. And then there are days, I mean, like a week later, you're like, oh, my God, this is a dead end. <laughs> We're so screwed. <laughs> um, and, and one of the key activism is you just pick yourself up and keep going. I love it. it. I love that. That that uh, I think you can apply that just about anything anything you do in life, right? Uh, at that point, uh, and it's it's really hard to make change happen. People are, and, and change is scary, and we and that's part of the the challenge of working with conventional ag folks is is acknowledging that yeah, it, it, there's a lot of uh, for good reason. There's a lot of fear in making those changes, and when you got your livelihoods at stake and your land at stake, um, you are and Farfa are, are doing a tour this year. Um, Called the Raise Your Voice Tour, uh, you're talking with a lot of ranchers and farmers. If I have that correct, could you could you talk about you know why you started this tour and what you're learning? So we started this tour largely because so so Farsa is a farmer-led organization. I'm a farmer as BD. Um, the majority, I think, six of our seven board members are active farmers. The other ones are connected to farming. Um, it's you know we we live this life, but at the same time. It's a small group in terms of leadership. You know, there's me, there's seven board members. You know, that's not a huge sample pool. So we feel like we understand a lot of the farming issues, but there probably are a lot out there who have additional perspectives. You know, that's, that's just, you know, it's the nature when you have sort of a smaller sure. number of people trying to make decisions. So we wanted to get out on the ground and talk with farmers and ranchers from a wide area um, you know, geographically try to reach out to different type, different regions and chat, first of all, see, just see what they had to say. I mean, the starting point actually was a wide open listening session. We just went out and, and I would start listening sessions as, other than the weather, what's causing a problem for you in growing, raising, or selling your crop and, or, or food? I didn't say crops. Growing, selling, or raising food. Just talk, talk to me. And mm -hmm. I would sit there with a big white horse and take notes. <laughs> Um, and then we'd get into, you know, a discussion and there'd be a back and forth. But the first step was just, let's, let's hear what people are going to say. Um, and the interesting thing was, each community was very different. I mean, they each had their own personality. There were specific issues facing each community. But, oh, 85, 90% of what we heard was the same. People really, oh, you know, the... the Small-scale and sustainable farming community issues um, are are what they are, mm -hmm. you know, from community to community, um, and everyone has a different twist. One of the fun, the slightly, slightly funny things that was the same was they all felt uniquely challenged. Yeah, um, they're like, oh, probably this is just an issue for us, but blah blah blah. And I'd grin and be like, 
nope, been hearing that one a lot. <laughs> you know, they just, and, and it's funny in that way, but, and it's not funny. Everyone feels very isolated, right. I think, also. It's a hard, it's a hard life. It's a difficult, first of all, just looking at it as a business, it's a very difficult business. It is still, despite the sort of growing popularity of sustainable ag and local foods, it is still not understood or respected or even really accepted by the majority of our society. Um, and, And so you're very isolated. And I think that comes through to believing that, you know, thinking that you've, it's bit, you know, you have, it's so hard, surely it can't be this hard for everyone. Right. <laughs> and the answer is actually it is. Right. Especially early on that we, we you know, I, I talked to a lot of folks on here and, and we joke about it, but early on they're usually the weird one or the crazy one or the one that's isolated, even in their local community, as being different or doing things different than their, their neighbors are. Uh, and, and eventually over time, you know, the, the neighbors see the success if, if if, if there are successes, they see them and they'll adapt to them, and, and, the, and the weirdness and the isolation tends to go away. But uh, we joke about that, saying that, that um, you know, that's when we know you're an Acres USA person is when your neighbors are calling you weird, but we know that, that there's, a, there's a real negative to that as well. Uh, when you do have a problem, who do you turn to? And when you do have a challenge, uh, how do you build that community of, of, of people who are solving that same problem? So have you been able to figure that one out? Uh, I don't know that I have a solution for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll say I think it. I think also, I think everything you just said was is correct. Like I, I, I second it. And there's a whole other layer, right. which is I think that in general, when when I look at it through a policy perspective, you know, what does it take to make change? Very broadly, and in agriculture specifically, people have been educated to be disempowered. Mm. So we are told, legislator, elected officials don't care. They're not going to listen to you. If you're really, you know, you want to make change, go to the voting poll booth, which is great. Let me let me say, everybody should be voting. Right. Go vote. But but like our view of civic activism or ad, you know civic engagement now in in America at this time, pretty much ends there. Yeah. Maybe if you're really active, you show up to a protest of some kind. People are, are affirmatively not taught. Well, go meet with your legislator. Go talk with them. Get, get to know them. Have them get to know you. Be involved in an, on an ongoing basis. And, and that, first of all, is true across the board. I mean, that is American society right now. And when you look at agriculture, there's been a concerted effort for decades to get people to simply trust that, you know, Farm Bureau is speaking for them. Like, you don't need to worry. Farm Bureau is taking care of everything at the government level for you. Um, and there's layers of problems with that. But it starts with, you know, Farm Bureau certainly has not done a whole lot to advocate for the type of farming that acres readers do. Right. But there's been taught, literally for two generations now, people, farmers have been taught to think that way. So you're not only weird for the type of farming you do, but this idea that it would be a good idea to be involved and active with your legislators and that you, you need to have an independent voice for it is something that has been trained out of us. 
Right. Uh, yes, that we, we we find it as a luxury to have time for for to be involved in politics, or you know, I hear that all the time. Well, I just don't have time to read that story. I don't have time to understand that, and uh, that's really hard for somebody in my position that we're trying to communicate the, these important things out there, and and uh, uh, somebody in your position as well that. Um, it all starts with education and uh, and being open-minded enough to receive that information and making the time to really be active uh, with those groups because uh, when change happens and you're blindsided by it, that's the first reaction, right? I wish I knew this was coming or I wish I had a <laughs> chance to say this or, you know, had a say in this. And, uh, uh, yeah, and I think uh, uh, that's something we, uh, as you discover stuff, I'd be interested to, to learn as well how we bridge those 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 people together because that's really at the core of what we, we want to do in the future at Acres and I know what... Uh, uh, you know, at our conference last year, it's something I, I, I repeat endlessly is, is when Dr. Vandana Shiva talked about we want to act locally, but we just don't have the luxury of doing that anymore. We have to be able to work together in a global uh, approach to get uh, uh, soil health to be the forefront and connected with human health. And how do we uh, work together to educate them to have that? So anyway, I'm rambling now, but I, I love that idea um, of how we how we bridge those the, the ideas of that all these farmers around the world are having the same challenges and how do we let them know that there's a huge network that we can create to solve these problems. So uh, a lot of work to be done there, I guess, huh? Absolutely. And I'd say, you know, one thing I'm starting to try, you know, one thing I would say on these listening sessions and we were talking about it and we talked about activism and, and advocacy, you know, the, the common theme, you know, one of the most common problems is, is that the regulations are, are so badly written from the perspective of our type of farming. Right. Um, let's note they're perfectly well written if you're dealing with huge monocultures and large-scale processing and the rest, but you know, doesn't, they, are, they are horribly designed from our perspective. And it takes, it, it, it's both expensive and time-consuming, though, for people to try to comply. Well, what if we had regs that didn't eat up all of that time and expense? Mm. Isn't that worth it? You know, getting involved as a civic, you know, with your legislators and, and working this, it's an investment. It's an investment in getting better laws and regulations that won't be sucking your time and energy and, and money down the drain. Makes sense. Is there one, um, you mentioned that there were a few themes that were showing up around uh, your talks. Uh, could you talk about a, a couple of those that, that you keep hearing over and over again? So, you know, I, I'd say there was three categories of themes and lots of specifics in each. But one of them, as I just said, was the, the badly written regs. Mm, yeah. You know, regulations that were designed from the perspective of what we want is a food system that is large and consolidated. I mean, that, that's what the government has wanted. Um, and they weren't shy about saying so for several decades. And so you know, these laws and regulations are just so badly designed in, in lots of different ways. They just pose challenge after challenge after challenge to producers pretty much at every step of, of trying to raise and sell food. Related to that, you have a lack of infrastructure. So, you know, if you go back 50 years, there were so many commercial canning kitchens. There were county, you know, there were community canning kitchens. There was a slaughterhouse, a processor in almost every county. You know, maybe not every county, but pretty close. You know, you weren't far away from a local processor. You know, there were there were all of these things. You you, you had people who were your seed dealer, who was an independent business, was looking and finding seeds that were suited for your community because they were an independent business serving your community. You had a feed store that, again, was an independent business 
that was looking out for what was, you know, what were the right products and right things for your community. Um, and so you had this wonderful infrastructure, and we don't have it now. Mm. It, between the government push for consolidation, which has included a complete lack of any kind of enforcement around antitrust law, right. um, and writing these regulations that help the big guys and hurt the small ones, you know, we've, we've lost this infrastructure. And so when you try farming, you're faced with, well, do I build all of that infrastructure myself? If some of it you can't even legally, I mean, you can't put up your own processing plant. Um, but, you know, do you do your own commercial kitchen? And how do you find the seeds you want? And how do you find things that are, you know, organic seed or at least GMO-free feed? And all of these things that you're stuck doing by yourself. That, were, that aren't designed to be done by an ind individual person. They're designed for infrastructure systems. So there's all this group of problems that are related to this loss of infrastructure. Hmm. And then, the, the, tie, again, all of them tie, all of them need to relate. Every single meeting, I spent a, a huge amount of time just answering people's questions about, well, if I want to do X, what do I need to do it legally? Hmm. Because they can't get those answers. Right. They, they go to the local health department. They go to the ag department. They go to the state health department. And they can't get a straight answer as to what they need to do to operate legally. Forget whether they even like the answer at the end of the day or not. You know, does that, is that a workable solution? Is it whatever? But they can't even get, figure out what it is they would need to do. Um, the, the government authorities, for the most part, and there are exceptions. There's, there's some good folks out there, there's some, and, and um, there was one local health department. I'll, I'll give a call out to the Abilene local health department. I heard from the folks in Abilene. They were actually really helpful, you know. Great. But literally, I can call them out of all of my meetings. There was one. Wow. wow. <laughs> um, I don't know how, some of it is, I don't think they understand how their own regs apply to our type of operation. I mean, again, they've got these regs that, that are written so terribly when it comes to understanding how it would apply to our type of operation that it would take a lot of work to figure out, well, what does this person need to do? They don't want to do that work. They don't want to deal with our folks. Oh, and that's inexcusable, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I can see it. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I see. You don't get paid a lot. Part of the benefit of your job is it's a, you know, nine to five, and, you know, this creates more work. It is much easier for you to go inspect one HCD than 20 farmers markets. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's not illogical, but it's kind of appalling. Right. It certainly shows a lack of priority, at the very least, at that point. Yeah. yeah. And they don't believe, I and mean, part of that, and, and fundamentally, they, they, because of what they've been taught by conventional medicine and the conventional public health, you know, education system, they affirmatively don't see it as a priority. They see our folks as not producing healthier food, in fact, producing riskier food. Right. So if anything, they have this disincentive in the back of their head to want to encourage us. Isn't that something and, and else? trying to educate them out of that is extremely difficult. Boy. Therein lies the challenge. That's that's a um, yeah. And that's uh, man. I, that that's hard to believe, but it, it's not so hard to believe, I guess. I uh, uh, at the same time. So I I uh, 
I, I think we all got some work to do there, and I think even reaching the, the people inside our agriculture department I think would mean a lot to farmers, because uh, uh, especially our farmers and our, our customers. Because, um, yeah, I know they, they feel like they're speaking Greek uh, when, when they're not um, at that point. So uh, what's next for the tour? Are you guys still going on with the tour? Uh, can people see you guys coming coming down the road? So the tour, the, the physical tour is done for this year. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm off the road for now except for conferences. Uh, we'll be at the Acres Conference. We'll be at the Southern Sod Conference and Texas Organics. And FARFA has its own conference coming up in October. Um, I would like to continue the tour, you know, on an ongoing basis. You know, each year trying to do more meetings, hit some new places that we haven't hit or some places we haven't gone in a while, that, that in-person connection, hearing what people have to say, um, really, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. It's funny, because I say that, to the, this is how I teach activism. It's like, you don't understand the impact that talking to your legislator in person has. And then I get reminded of it on this tour, in terms of hearing people's stories, it's in person, sitting down and talking with them, is so different than the emails or the calls I get. Um, it's a reality we 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 process information differently so i'm hoping to continue we're hoping to continue doing these more of these in-person meetings but not for the rest of this year i understand there's uh times to be home too makes sense uh what uh uh can you talk a little bit about i know uh well let me talk to our audience a little bit here if you want to learn more about farfa you can go to farmandranchfreedom.org um can you tell us a little bit about the conference that's coming up in October and what you guys will be talking about? Yes, yeah, so it's October 14th through 16th in McKinney, which is just north of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is for, we have stuff there for farmers, for ranchers, for chefs and small food business owners, and for consumers. We're trying to bring everyone together. Um, there are some pre-conference workshops on things like the food safety regs, you know, so that folks can learn how to deal with the federal regulations that are coming down the pike. And then there's a lot more positive stuff. You know, so there's, we're, we're talking about how do you form co-ops and how do you have a successful co-op. Um, we've got sessions on scaling up. You know, how, actually, we've got sessions for both ends. We've got sessions on if you're just starting and you want to break into the market, what are marketing options for really small-scale producers? And for those that are looking at scaling up, how do we scale up? You know what? How what what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to move up, move up the size chain as a sustainable producer. Um, we've got a lot of stuff, obviously, because of our focus on the more policy and economic side. So we're going to have, um, you know, a speaker from D.C. talking about trade, Patty Lavera talking about trade, and what it means. We're going to have um, workshops on activism. Um, great speaker coming down from the Northeast, or not Northeast, yes, Northeast Atlantic Marine Alliance, talking about how they succeeded in shifting institutional buying habits to support mm. small family fishermen instead of the big industry. So all sorts of topics like that, and the topics that will bring in our consumer base on nutrition and backyard gardening and small-scale poultry keeping and all of these things for, for consumers and, and hobbyists and um, setters because that's our, our whole community needs to be working together on all of these issues I, I, I like it a lot uh, that's again in mid-october in McKinney Texas uh, if you want to 1010 how do they attend 
So we've got the information up on our website, which is farmandranchfreedom.org. Um, it's just farmandranchfreedom.org. There's a tab for conference. We keep the registration rates fairly low um, as much as we can, but if those pose a problem for people, we also have scholarship and volunteer opportunities, uh, including we actually just set up um, one, of, one of the farmers who was a, a force behind our founding, Larry Butler, recently passed away, um, which mm. was a, a great loss to the organic community. Mm. Um, and we set up a scholarship fund in his name. Oh, fantastic. And so, first of all, if people are inspired, there's you know, an opportunity to donate for that. And we can, we, through that fund, we can even help a little bit with travel expenses for new farmers. That's uh, 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 fantastic. Uh, we'll have a link, too, on our website and on this podcast, if you're looking forward as well, to their homepage uh, where you can find all that event information. Um, and if you happen to miss the October event, you can catch Judith and Farfa at, in Louisville, uh, Kentucky at our conference in, in early December and learn more at acresusa.com. I'm excited to get to hang out with Judith again uh, in December in person. Um, last words, uh, I want to you know, give you a chance to talk to our audience a little bit. Um, always looking for inspiration or, or advice or, or wisdom out there to share. Uh, do you have any last words for them or, or, or something that they can take with them? So, I think it's it, it's a two, two sides of a coin of what we've already been talking about in some ways. But to try to to try to leave it it more succinctly, to never underestimate how much of an impact each individual person can have. I have seen legislators turn their position based on a conversation with a constituent. I have seen you know, the difference it can make when one person stands up and talks. And at the same time, that is never enough by itself. The strength of our movement is in building community. And we are, we are so uniquely well positioned to do that. When you look at where our society is right now, and you know, it's hackneyed, it's hackneyed. we're so polarized, we're so divided, you know, everyone's talking about how polarized and divided we are, and oh, how do we overcome that? And the way we overcome that is by finding where truly there is common ground. And I look at what we, our type of farmers do, what our food community does, and I go, this is where we have common ground. Every, for, for everybody eats. <laughs> everybody is the basic necessity. It affects everyone's health. It affects the air we breathe. And it affects our economy and our independence and our sovereignty. I mean, there's, you, you can look at this and it matters so fundamentally to everybody and it's not a trade-off. We are, at this point, I mean, I've been doing this already for 12 years. I, didn't, I got into it because of Sustainable Act, because this is my community and I love it and I live it and I believe in it. At this moment, though, in time, I'm seeing it as an even broader issue than I already thought. I'm seeing it as a way to heal so much of what is happening in our society, or at least start to. I mean, it's not, I don't want to overstate it. Obviously, there are other issues, and at some point, we have to tackle them and the rest of it. But, but this could be the trigger for starting to heal right. beyond food and beyond agriculture, even. So, so let's do that. Let's talk with our communities. Let's talk with our elected officials. Let's, in our own self-interest, to make our farms more successful, we need to do it. And 
particular part of this society and this community, and we have this opportunity that I think is, is pretty unique to our community um, to, to be that bridge. I think that's very well put, and I really appreciate all that. Um, just to summarize what we talked about, yeah, that that you know, it's 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 intimidating to get involved, but you got to do it. Um, once you get involved, you'll realize that people are out there willing to listen. They're trying to find solutions. I think we got to be uh, get over those first hurdles. That I uh, really hope everybody who's listening really understands that there's a huge network out there of people trying to solve the same problems. Uh, if you're wondering how to get connected, find groups like Farfa. Uh, find groups like Acres USA, uh, find groups out there in your local community that you can uh, work with to uh, get connected with those groups and that they should have uh, uh, ways to do that. So um, again, uh, we're so lucky to have Judith McGeary on the podcast today. Uh, Judith, thank you so much for your time and uh, we wish you all the best of, of luck going forward with what you're doing. Thanks. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. This was another episode of Tractor Time Podcast. Thank you for listening again. Uh, our next episode will be a good one with David Montgomery and Anne Bickley, authors of all sorts of books on connecting soil health and civilization. Uh, they got a new project coming out next year they're going to talk about as well. So stay tuned. Uh, thank you again for listening. You can learn more about Acres USA at acresusa.com. That's A-C-R-E-S-U-S-A.com. Or you can just give us a call at 1-800-355-5313. Uh, we have real humans ready to answer the phone and talk to you and help you get connected with the right educational materials. Uh, thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye.